Psalm 19, 1 through 6. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. Os céus manifestam glórias de Deus e o firmamento anuncia as obras de suas mãos. Um dia faz declaração a outro dia e uma noite mostra sabedoria a outra noite. Sem linguagem, sem fala, ouvem-se as suas vozes. Em toda a extensão da terra e as suas palavras até o fim do mundo, neles pôs um tenda para o sol, que é qual noivo que sai do seu tálamo e se alegra como um herói e corre o seu caminho. A sua saída e desce uma extremidade dos céus e o seu curso até o outro extremidade deles, e nada se falta o seu calor. This is the word of the Lord. How long does it take to make the woods? As long as it takes to make the world. The woods is present as the world is. The presence of all its past and of all its time to come. It is always finished. It is always being made. The act of its making forever greater than the act of its destruction. It is part of eternity for its end and beginning belong to the end and the beginning of all things. The beginning lost in the end, the end in the beginning. These are a few lines from one of my favorite poems by uh, the brilliant author Wendell Berry. Um, I can't tell you how many mornings I have found myself lost in this refrain, in this story, and in this imagery. And how each time I have read or recited these words, my mind and my heart have been evoked and provoked to see the world in a new way. And not just the world, but my world, my life, in a new way. The woods of my world forever being made, and the act of its making greater than the act of its destruction. These are the words that linger in me from week to week in moments when the lights get dim and my hope for what is to come is failing. When my weakness clouds my ability to see that I am not the sum total of my failures. The act of its making forever greater than the act of its destruction. Poetry has this unique way of teaching us to see of giving us sight where we may not have been able to see before. Through language and rhythm and imagination, poetry helps us see the world differently, see our world differently. And poets help us reframe and open our eyes to what might be right in front of us. This kind of literature has the power to wake us up, it can thrust us back to memories and truths we've known consciously or subconsciously, not just in our minds, but in our souls. 
Poetry can get our attention like few other things in this world can, and whether it's through a lyric from your favorite rap song or the cadence of a Shakespearean play, poetry is a language for the soul that demands we see something we have not seen before. Now, we've been in a series, as you know, called Hearing God, listening to the still small voice of the Holy Spirit. And in it, we've learned that God speaks through Jesus, the living word, through the scriptures, the written word, through the gift of prophecy, and as we heard of the last two weeks, to the soul. Now today, we're going to end our series with the Spirit speaking through creation. And we're gonna do that in three movements. Ready? Great, doesn't matter, we're gonna do it anyway. (laughs) David's poetry is our first movement. Jesus' warning is our second. And an invitation to see again is our third. So let's get started. We're gonna start with David's poetry. Now, much like the poetry I just read in Psalm 19, we find a poem of David's, a window into how he saw the world, into his experience with creation and with God. The infamous psalm or poem is laced with metaphor and language meant to provoke our hearts to wonder, meant to provoke us, the reader, to see something that maybe we haven't seen before. David, the beautiful lyricist, allows us through the psalm to observe what I believe to be a holy moment of personal worship. And at the same time, we find his worship inviting us to see and recognize God's voice the way that he did. So in order for us to really understand what David was inviting us into, we have to consider a few things. The first is his context. This is gonna help us know where he's coming from. So. What was David's context? How did he get into a place that would cause him to write what he did, to observe the world as he was? Was he on a camping trip? Was he enjoying a weekend with the boys? What was going on? Well, we definitely don't have an exact timeline for when David wrote this, so we can't be exactly sure, but we do know from history that on many occasions, David found himself in creation, in the wilderness, Sometimes because he was a shepherd tending to his flock and others, and often later in his life, we know that he was there by force, not by choice. When he was there by force, we know that David was living off the land in creation, apart from most comforts and luxuries, and that he was often forced to run the landscape of the surrounding countryside because, in short, his predecessor king wanted to kill him. That's a story for another time. And while I'm sure he understood the common and natural beauty found in his surrounding, I'm certain that paying attention to this poetic moment wasn't always his focus. David spent years of his life outside, running, hiding, tending sheep and surveying the land, living in the wilderness. So what was it that allowed him to see beyond his circumstances, beyond his context, to find what most of us wouldn't? What was it that allowed him to see the things we hear him speak to in this poem? I think to answer that, we also have to consider how this context impacted his outlook altogether. David, when in the wilderness, was often in desperate situations, sometimes confronted by wild animals and other times confronted and hunted by other people. Even after he had already been anointed king, declared king by this man, a prophet named Samuel, he, instead of taking the throne, hid in the land for at least, we know, four years before he actually ruled the land. 
David was regularly running, hiding, fighting, living in the wilderness. Sounds great to some of you, yeah? Not to me. Now we know from the scriptures that he was a man who was often desperate, and it makes sense, right, in light of his circumstances, that he was looking for God's help, looking for God's promises, looking for God's voice. So what about the wilderness? What about the nature that surrounded him allowed him to find God's voice in moments of both peace and fear? What allowed him to recognize and see what most of us would not have been able to see in those circumstances? These questions are central to understanding what David has to say and central to what he's drawing our attention to in Psalm chapter 19, verses one to six. So, I want you to hold those questions in the back of your mind while we try to enter into this poem ourselves. As we look together and remember that this is poetry, so we're gonna have to do our best to explore David's metaphors in the hopes of beginning to see what he sees. So, let's look at it now. Psalm chapter 19, if you want to, you can look in your Bibles. If not, you can just chillax. We saying that or no? Just a quick check-in, we're not, okay. Yeah, I feel a lot of shame. Shame followed me as soon as I said that, so it's a clear indicator we're not. Okay, no chillax. All right, David starts out this song, and he starts out with what to me feels like a shout. Uh, Obviously, my personality here, it's not the Bible, that's just how I imagine it, and he opens with this blanket statement, the heavens declare the glory of God. This line could be read this way. The heavens are telling the story or making us aware of God's abundance, of his glory, of his reputation. And when we read something like this with this kind of descriptive language, it should make us wanna ask a question or two. And the first in my mind, at least, is how. How do the heavens declare God's glory? When someone mentions the location of something, often we look in that direction. And when I hear the heavens, I immediately look up at the sky. And if I do that, I can actually see the vastness, I can see the endlessness, I can see the clouds and their evolving form, which means that this poetry is more than just a gentle expression. David's metaphor here is calling us to see a truth about God that could be summed up, he says, in the image of the sky. This invitation meant to make us aware or to move us to consider God outside of our tiny little boxes or perceived realities and to know like the sky, his vastness, his endlessness, his evolving form, his everywhereness. The opening line tells us something about David and the way he was seeing the world, how he was able to see and hear God's voice. To beyond just naming the creation in front of him, he was able to observe and experience this reverb of God's nature through what he was observing, through the creation that surrounded him. Now David goes on in his poem and he does so using more language around the sky. And again, he says that day after day and night after night, speech or God's language is being poured out and that that Uh, language was producing knowledge, was revealing knowledge that we were meant to take in. This imagery, again, casting our minds to the dynamic nature of God, not the static. Are you with me? And onto the fact that our God is actually a communicating or a speaking God. 
David says that there's some kind of language being poured out and spoken all the time through creation. Day and night, speech is being poured out and David has observed those days up close. He has observed days and their cadence and their rhythm, day and night. Can you imagine being outside day and night? Observing realities that you and I often miss because we live inside houses. But David has observed this, this never stopping, this consistent flow of a story being told. Speaking to this dynamic reality of God. Speaking to the heart of those who will listen. God speaks a language through his creation. A continual message about who he is and how he works. And language, as you know, language is the means of connection. It is how we relate to one another. And this refrain of David's calls us to consider the relational realities of God to us. It's so good to know God is always speaking, pouring out language, and not just to some, but as sure as the day and the night will come, he is revealing knowledge about himself, the creator, to all that he has created. David's imagery around this language, though, as we read in verse four, is without words. He tells us that there is still something being spoken. And in the Hebrew, if you do a little bit of work, there's this uh, language around this being like a thread, a thread of God's language woven throughout the earth. And this thread transcends the boundary lines of geography and ethnicity, tribe or tongue, which means that all people on the earth speak this language. All people on the earth can hear God speaking, if only we will listen. Now finally, David ends the first part of his poem by talking again about the heavens, and so metaphorically our eyes jump again to the skies, and this time we find the sun now central to his lyrics. David would have been very familiar with the sun and its power and heat, much like us Floridians. We know about it in a way you don't. And so he goes on and observes that God has, and this is a weird phrase, but he pitched a tent for the sun. Now it seems weird, but the readers or the listeners and the original uh, hearers of this text would have heard this and understood exactly what it meant. He compares God to the sun. And the phrase he uses here calls back to the time when Moses pitched a tent for Yahweh. Do you remember that? This imagery is meant to draw us to the author of life. David speaks of the sun here as a spiritual being, the one who gives life to the earth and all its creation, like God giving life to Israel from the tent. This is meant to remind us of our place and where our life truly comes from. Now, that was just six lines of a poetry slam. And I feel slammed, anyone else? Yeah, so we're gonna, we're gonna hit pause here and I just wanna say a few things about this poetry. This poetry is a reflection of what David could see. Of what David could see. The nature and the bigness of God, the witness of him in days and seasons. The beauty of God in the sun. All of it is a response to what he could see about God in the world around him. And while poetry is beautiful, I think most of us would say, yeah, we get that, this is true, we understand that. But that's not enough. This kind of poetry should cause us to ask, what gave David the ability to see? 
to hear God's voice this way in and through creation despite his varying circumstances. And more importantly, it should cause us to ask, when was the last time I saw that way? When was the last time you saw a sunrise or tasted a fresh piece of sourdough bread or held the hand of someone you love and thought this, this declares the glory of God. This is what God's voice sounds like to me. David observed that we can hear God's voice in creation and in this poetry and in many other poems in this book, we find an invitation to join him in seeing what he saw and experiencing God and his voice, his speaking all around us through creation. And while this morning we could just read this and take it as a little nudge towards God's presence, I think there's actually more for us. Because we know from the scriptures that David isn't the only one who speaks about God this way about God's voice being alive in and through what he created. Paul, the apostle, also made this powerful statement in Romans 1, verse 20. He said this, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what was made so that people are without excuse. Paul, amongst other writers of the Old and New Testament, understood what David was saying, and Paul also knew that there was something important about this reality for those who want to know God and want to hear his voice. And I can't help but think that that's significant, that it's something that we're meant to see and hear and get, not just once, but something we're meant to keep paying attention to. I wonder if Paul and these other authors knew like we know how easy it is to miss it, how easy it is to become used to the world around us, or how easy it is to look at and consider God but not actually see him, to miss not just something but the voice of God himself. In John chapter nine, Jesus speaks to this phenomenon that happens even to those who love him and claim to love him the most. When he warns against this leaning in all of us to miss something beautiful and alive with his voice, even when it's in plain sight. Our second movement this morning is Jesus' warning. Now, if you've been following along with us for the last few months, this story from John chapter 9 should be very familiar to you. But to those of you who haven't, or maybe you need a quick review, I want to walk through what's happening here in John 9, the story from Jesus. Now in this text, we find Jesus about to heal a blind man, and this blind man was blind from birth. And Jesus does this wild, really weird thing where he spits in the mud and slams that muddy spit mud on the guy's eyes. I don't know what the technical term is. But he puts the mud on the man's eyes, and now the man can see. All good, right? Sort of. Because if you remember, the town doesn't seem to get it. First, we know his neighbor struggled to recognize him, which is super strange. I don't know if you've observed this in the text. I'm not a brilliant theologian, but I thought this was strange. I've never thought sight was something that could throw off your ability to recognize someone. Like, oh, he can see now. Who is that? Like, don't you? Okay, that's a, that is so weird. Uh, many, anyway, I just want to be gracious and say maybe it was tough, question mark. Now, The truth is, the story doesn't get much better from there for this guy. In verse 13, the neighbors, still freaking out, now bring him to see the Pharisees, these local religious leaders of the day. 
And he graciously, in my opinion, gives them account of what happened and they don't believe him. And everyone now in the town is without a doubt killing this man's vibe. Anyway, things escalate. He gets, they get his parents involved, do you remember that? And they don't help much. And then finally, he makes his way back to Jesus with a few Pharisees in tow. So we're gonna look at John chapter nine, verse 35. And I'm gonna read it for us. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out and when he found them, he said, do you believe in the son of man? Who is he, sir, the man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see, and those who will see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what, are we blind too? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. All right, there's a lot there, but what I want us to get is largely from the last verse of this text. Because it's here that Jesus essentially says to the religious people, the people who should have been able to recognize what was happening, it's about sight, and you can't see. It's about sight. It's about recognizing God, his voice, his presence among you, and beyond what you can perceive with your eyes, it's about sight. Jesus knows that in all of us, there's this propensity to miss him, what he's up to. And in this text, we, we see so clearly that even the best, most trained eye can miss him, even when he's standing right in front of them. So... When was the last time you saw a sunrise or tasted a fresh piece of sourdough bread or held the hand of someone you love and thought, this, this declares the glory of God. The son of man came so that we might see. So the question we have to ask is, do we? Can you see? Or is there something blocking your sight? Is there something distorting your vision? Now, I'm no doctor and no daughter of a doctor, but uh, I do love medicine, uh, taking it and learning about it. And, uh, <laughs> and so I just wanna share a few things. I think this is actually helpful. It could have just been my own pleasure, uh, but I did a little research. And uh, if you're an optometrist, I apologize. But I, I just wanna speak um, to physical sight, because there are some things that I think parallel spiritual sight. Clinically, there are three major obstacles to perfect vision. Now again, please don't email me. I'm not claiming to be an optometrist. These are just some of the most common, at least as I've read. And the first is blurry vision caused by the cornea or the lens of the eye having a different or unique shape. The second obstacle is irritation. And that can be caused by internal reactions or external environmental factors. And the third is disease, or more specifically, a disease called glaucoma, an eye disease that damages the optic nerve, which needs to be healthy in order for you to have any sight at all. Now, again, for some of you, this might be a moment where you're like, I need to set that appointment. I totally forgot. So <laughs> we bless you. Um, 
But for the rest of us, honestly, I think there's something here that while I know it's totally cheesy, speaks to the obstacles we're up against when it comes to recognizing God like David did. Three major obstacles that I think are really similar in nature, and yet they are different in name. So the obstacles I wanna talk about this morning, I think, come in the form of distortion, distraction, and obstruction. Now, I wanna take a minute, talk about each of these. I think it's really important. I think we need to be aware of our ability to miss these things. Aware of how this might be impacting us, whether it's an extremely felt need or just a future one. So let's look at them together. First up, distortion. Much like blurry vision, distortion is all about the lens through which we view the world. And the truth is, most of the time, if you have a distorted lens, you rarely know it. Distortion is usually subtle and it comes through tiny bends, straight lines that orient in a particular but barely noticeable direction. This means that we may think we see clearly, but only recognize that's not true when a test comes or another lens is put in front of us. Distortion could translate into a lot of things these days and a lot of things for each of us personally, so you need to work that out with Jesus. Can I trust you to do that? Okay, well, I'm gonna give you a minute at the end to do that anyway, but um, we do need to do that. But this morning, I just wanna speak to one of these things that I think is subtly yet powerfully impacting us, especially those of us in this city, and especially when it comes to creation and nature. In our Portland culture, as well as really the broader uh, culture of being Western Americans, we are surrounded by a consistent and great story about creation. And it's a story that has been pioneered for centuries alongside the God story. The lens that culture gives us includes truth, truth that keeps us from thinking our vision is incorrect. But remember that it's in the bins that we have to watch out for uh, distortion. Our culture's lens sounds something like this. Nature is stunning, transcendent even. It tells a story. And we all say, yeah. I mean, have you ever seen Portland? It's like, yeah, yesterday was like, yeah. All right, it felt that. I, I was like, wow. I was even mowing my lawn. I was like, wow. <laughs> That's been alive in me as well. All that to say. This is true, these things are true, but the defining moment or the bending moment is usually found at the end of that statement. And Portland's culture and narrative usually ends with whether blatant or just inferred that nature is also God, or a God, to be worshiped. Now how can you say that, Bethany? Well, you don't have to look very far to see the worship of it in our city. You don't have to take a survey to know how many of us run to it before we run to God that we go to it for peace before we find peace in God. Nature says, our city says, that nature is the pinnacle of life, and we can see this clearly expressed on many weekends when the sun does decide to show up, or when the city rallies and chooses the life of pets, plants, and trees over the lives of people. Look at culture's lens. Yes, it's not all wrong, and please don't hear me saying that creation was made for us. Creation is insane and powerful, and it does something to the soul, but it is not the creator of the soul. And when those lines get blurred is when worship or our worship becomes distorted. 
The language being poured out by creation isn't meant to be one way. It is meant to evoke a response and a specific response to someone. Where this lens gets blurry and distorted for most of us is where we allow the wonder or the power of creation to take us. Is it worship of creator or is it worship of creation itself? Now, before I move on, I need to also name another lens given to us by culture that I do think is significant just to name, especially in light of this specific teaching. Because we know that nature isn't the only subtle distortion we find around creation because nature isn't the only thing that was created. If you just take a second right now, I'm just gonna ask you because everyone needs to take a breath, yeah? Yeah, I'm not asking you to do that, but I appreciate the feedback. I'm gonna ask you just real quick to look to the person to your right. Just Just look at them, don't be weird. No need to look to the left now, that person. Is everybody with me? Great, I hope you weren't weird now. Might have been a love connection. So we just, Lord, we pray. Hear our prayer. Now, if I asked you, what did you see? I hope you saw a person, maybe the wall, but you saw a person maybe on the other side. And maybe that wasn't the best way to get you there, but my point is that creation also includes you and me. People, humans. And just like nature, we live in a culture that has a distinct lens around us regarding other humans. Yes, humans are broken and unpredictable and often disappointing, but we all, humanity, when it really comes down to it, we have a propensity to worship the strength and wonder that we find in another over the strength and wonder we find in God. Whether that's through a relationship or just in our imagination and fantasy. Culturally, we live in a time where cynicism and criticism and sometimes war is what's associated most with humankind. And yet there is a deep calls to deep reality that even though it's a good thing could, if, not, if we're not willing to consider the creator actually become distorted, could be a driving force to put creation at the center of our worship. Because our culture says, I am like God, which is true. You are like God, which when bent leads to I am God. I, the created being, I can answer the questions of my own creation. I can be what the creator has been to me. And that while subtle also um, perverts and prevents us, bends us from seeing what we need to see rightly. This is one of the most contested spaces in our spiritual life. These subtle distortions and others, whatever yours may be, while not always central, but always on the periphery, have this way of blurring what we're meant to see. It has this ability to dull our perception of what actually is and hinder our ability to hear the language being spoken over us day after day after day, morning and night. Now, unfortunately, that's not the only thing because we live in a world full of distorted images, a world full of a misunderstanding of self, but we also live in a world filled with distractions. And while distractions intellectually feel like something we have power over, they are, in my opinion, one of the greatest obstacles to our sight. Now, distractions, again, for you, comes in different shapes and sizes. Distractions very much fit in our hands and in our relationships and in the rhythm of our lives. Distractions sit among us like skyscrapers downtown, 
We, like those buildings, are surrounded by what we are meant to see, but because of their lights and how they sit on the skyline, the fullness around us is never actually fully grasped. Distracted sight is not about being blind to what is before you, but about being preoccupied with something that prevents you from giving your full attention. I think about David, how he was in the wilderness, likely stripped of what external distractions he had, but also likely filled with the internal distractions. Will I survive this? Will I ever be king? Will that lion come back? Will these men I'm leading come to resent me? Distractions are both internal and external. And in David's, David's Psalms, in his poems, we see that there seems to be a decided moment when distraction is put aside and sight is restored. So my question for us this morning is what distracts you? Even when I asked you to turn to the person next to you, what came up within you? Did you have to set down your phone to do that? Did you have to stop the train of thought that was creating the grocery list for after the gathering? No judgment. And what would you see if you weren't distracted? What even over the last two hours could have been true if your eyes were uninhibited by the rush out the door or the text from your boss? We all have distractions. So I'm not saying that we'll never have any or that we shouldn't, but what I am saying is that often we miss what is right in front of us. We do miss God's presence, no matter how hungry we are for it. We miss his witness, his voice, because we've allowed others to take precedent. Distractions are much like the irritation in the eyes. Not problematic per se, but long-term can keep us from seeing what we are meant to see. And I love to travel. Um, I'm traveling again this summer. Olay, uh, it's gonna be fun. <laughs> And I'll be gone for a little bit, just two weeks, but anyway, um, I've mentioned that before, and specifically, I love to travel to Ireland. Uh, I think there's something deep calling to deep, you know, obviously, within me. I feel like I'm in the land of my people. I, it's just, uh, I just say that to them, they hate it. Uh, but I just, I'm like, we're the same. They're like, no, we're not. Uh, um, that place can do no wrong in my eyes. Um, and I got to go back there this last October with a few friends from church. And this time went to Northern Ireland, which I had not been to and, and also didn't disappoint, um, even though I thought it might because I had like this love affair with, anyway, Southern Ireland. And anyway, we got to go to a really famous spot called the Giant's Causeway. Yeah, so some of you have been there. And I just remember as soon as we arrived, and by the way, I drove, no accolades, but like, honestly, it was a big deal. Um, <laughs> As soon as we got there, uh, I, the first thing I did wasn't step out of the van and go like, <sighs> you know, and take it in. The first thing I did was, first thing I did was pull out my phone. That's the first thing I did. Um, and uh, I was so anxious. I remember just thinking, okay, like, this is great to be with these people. Focus. You don't want to forget this moment. So let's make sure we get all the best shots. And when I pulled out my phone, I also had a few text messages that I needed to respond to. Um, so I get out the phone, we start making our way. There's like this long journey down to the causeway and uh, I got my phone out and then I thought I need to be taking pictures of the people behind me. I have these really bizarre pictures of a few friends um, because I, thought, I don't wanna miss this. I'm here with these people, I need to remember that. Responding to text, trying to take pictures. Along. I'm literally shuffling down the way. I'm like, Natalie, turn to the side. Let me get a cool photo of you, which I'm like not even, if, I'm, if you follow me on Instagram, you're like, there's literally nothing there. You're right. Uh, I get anxiety. Anyone else about posting? I just hate, anyway, it's a therapeutic thing I need to work through. But anyway, 
This is a long way of saying, once I got to the Giants Causeway, again, I was like, gotta get everything. How do I get the whole, I don't know how to do anything on my iPhone, so how do I get the whole panoramic view, and who am I gonna send this to, and what's this gonna look like? And in that moment, I just remember the Spirit of God speaking to me. It was almost like he slapped that phone out of my hand and just said, you're gonna miss this. I made this for you. This country is yours. Yes. And, um, and you love it. And it burns in you. And you are so distracted that you're missing the whole thing and the thing that I wanna say to you about it. And even if it's just, I love you. And I made all this for you. And all of this tells you in this moment where you need to hear it most that I will never leave you and never forsake you. All of this bears witness to something in you that is so desperate to hear my voice. And yet your phone, the tiny little box you're looking through is the lens through which you're trying to receive that message. There is so much more. Put down your phone. And I was like, <laughs> you know, just whatever. But you know what, you know what I'm talking about? Distraction comes in all kinds of ways. But I wonder if so many of us like me are willing to trade moments of intimacy, moments we're actually desperate for, for moments of preoccupation. If we value getting the shot and telling the story ourselves rather than receiving the story that is meant to be told to us, there's more for us. If only we set the distractions away. If only for just a minute we set it aside and allowed ourselves to be present to what God was doing. Now finally, obstruction. And for, uh, for many of us, this one's gonna feel obvious. You get it, something's in your line of sight and you can't see. But I, I think, uh, to go back to the metaphor, this is often more like glaucoma. So just stay with me. Obstruction to me, usually isn't just an object plopped right in front of me because most of us are really good at swatting those kind of things away. It's like mosquito season, it's like you know. Last night I killed one, I was like, I'm not sure whose blood that was. Anyway, it was too much, I'm so sorry, I shouldn't <laughs> share that. But we know how to do that, we know how to swat those things away. So, so, so this is more like something subtle that actually hinders the eyes from functioning altogether. This for a lot of us looks like deep-seated pain or resentment a preoccupation with brokenness that leads us to eventually lose our sight altogether. Maybe obstruction for you looks like loss or loneliness so great that you've forgotten what it means to even look up. You see, the thing about pain or the thing about obstruction is usually it causes you to go inward and not outward. And if you go inward, you can't see what's all around you. In each of us lies the possibilities of obstructed sight. The official term for that is blind spots. And these are usually areas of our lives that we are meant to see, but also areas that mean we need to adjust our position so we are able to see more fully. Obstructed sight is often subconscious, but if not recognized, it can cost us more than we know. Obstructed sight is an invitation an invitation to see as David saw. It means adjusting mirrors and naming what you can't see in the hopes of seeing more fully. So what are your blind spots? And where should you, or where do you intellectually know you should be able to see God, but you aren't? Where do you want to see him, but you can't seem to catch a glimpse of him? 
And what do you need to do to gain a little more sight? Sight, as we've talked about it today, means recognizing God around us, reflected to us in what he has created. And while so much of us see the world and find it in nature, so much more, I believe, is found in one another. In Genesis chapter two, we find what I'm calling our third movement, an invitation to see again. And it's here that we read about man's first experience with woman. As God creates this perfect world, this utopia, this perfect place meant to in every way reflect his glory, we find him creating nature, land, water, animals, sun, moon, sky, day and night, and still at the end of it all, saying, there's still something greater to be created that reflects my glory more fully, that in my own interpretation allows you to see me and hear me most clearly. And then God creates man and woman. And I want you to see what happens when he does. Look at verses 22 through 23, it'll be on the screen. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of man and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. Verse 23 here isn't your normal biblical rhetoric. It is in fact poetry. God creates humans as the height of his creation. And instead of bursting out into poetic song at the sunrise or the roar of a lion, Adam only does so at the creation of woman. At the creation of another human, in her he finds his own reflection, his own glory. God's glory. So just really simply, our invitation to see again isn't just layered in nature, but it is also found in one another. When was the last time you looked at someone and you really saw them? When was the last time you looked at your best friend or your husband or your wife and you had sight? We are, like Romans 1 says, without excuse when it comes to finding God's voice all around us. If we are on this earth, breathing, living, we are undoubtedly being invited to see. God is speaking to us through the world around us, through the person next to us. The question is, are we listening? Now, um, if your answer is like mine, it won't be an emphatic yes. Like I wanted it to be like totally. And this week he was like, mm. So it's like this mix then more of like sometimes and I want to. And so, um, so with that, if you want to see if you want to hear God through creation, there's just three things I want to invite you to do this week. Just three things, and I'm not gonna go in depth on each one because you kinda know what they mean, and I wanna honor our time to respond to Jesus, but here they are. The first is slow down. We move at a pace in our culture and world that often keeps us from being able to hear and see. How many times have you flown out the door and someone said something to you and you were like, totally, no idea, you know? Um, or been so preoccupied with something else, your mind racing so fast that you miss what the person was saying right in front of you. If we're going to listen, then we have to listen. And the first step in listening is slowing down. Now next, we have to listen for the cues. It's amazing to me that God has set up cues in creation for us to find him. I mean, it's just wild, it's so helpful. It's like we're all preschoolers. 
you know? And he's like, okay, this is red, 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 you know? And we're like, what's red? You know, he's like, okay, red again, red, red. And it's so wonderful because we're so simple, we are. And what's amazing to me is my body is regularly prompted to hear his voice through the change of temperature in a room or the taste of the spices I had on my tongue last week or the touch of another person. These are cues for me to be attentive to his presence, to what he's up to in creation. We also see a rhythm, particularly where we live, which is phenomenal. Seasons that we can actually see with their eyes. In Florida, you don't see any of those. It's just one hot blanket of heat. And so nothing changes and everything looks the same. But here we see the changing of seasons. And if we don't see it, we feel it. We put on sweaters. We, we shift our clothing. We think about snowshoes. We, we think about these kind of things. And again, a rhythm is saying to me there is a movement and a, a dynamic reality to who I am in and out of season always there. And just when you think something is dead, it will live again. It's why we follow the church calendar, which also tells the story according to creation. Ash Wednesday, everything dies, but on Resurrection Sunday, it is springtime and new life is formed. There are cues in creation, cues all around you right now, your hunger telling you that there's a need within your soul for more. Listen for the cues. Finally, receive the invitation. These are invitations to know God. I talk to people all the time who are like, I don't know his voice, I can't. And, and, and what I'm baffled by within my own self and with them is how often I miss this invitation to know him. Yes, I want the prophetic word that speaks profoundly to my soul. Yes, I want to know him through Jesus. Yes, I want to know him through other people, but I need to receive the invitation I'm being given in my own body before I look at these other ones. Every morning I wake up with breath in my lungs a, I love you, but like not in a creepy hot breath kind of way. <laughs> Every invitation is to know him, to see him, to learn him. Every moment I can look out the sky and see the sky outside and see that the sky is lit up with sunshine reminds me that there is an ever giving life source available to me if I'll take it. Receive the invitation. Instead of going, it's just the sun, there are a lot of planets, gives us life, it's gonna blow up soon anyway, or whatever. Not that you all would say that, but uh, let's just say you might. Receive the invitation. When it comes knocking, all you have to do is say, what are you saying? What are you saying? What are you inviting me to see? It takes 30 seconds. I'm not asking for an entire Sabbath day where you do this, though that's a great practice but I am asking for 20 minutes a day, what would happen if you gave him 10 minutes, sat outside and said, what do you want me to see or know about who you are through your creation? Yeah. Or sat with another person, put down your phone, looked them in the face and listened to the words they were speaking. Saw the pain in their eyes or the life and vitality in their soul. How would it change you and what you believe about the God who made you?